Corinthians and chapter 15, and we want to read from verse 20 to verse 34. From verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning with verse 20. Go ahead, please. Thank you very much. Remember that the subject is, excuse me, I need to uh, adjust things here slightly. The subject is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ, and actually, even more so, the focus is the resurrection of the believer. The believer, like other people in this world, experiences physical death. The Bible tells us that spirit and soul go to be with the Lord. Will the body of the believer rise again? Will there be a resurrection of the body as far as the believer is concerned? It seems that some people in the church of Corinth thought that the answer to that question was no. Spirit and soul are with the Lord. Body is gone, decaying. Uh, body will not rise again. Now, why did they think so? We're not sure. We're not told. It is possible that there was an influence in this matter from the culture that they came from. In the Greek culture, the body, and I mean by that skin and bones and tissues and so on, the body was thought to be evil. And so there was this tendency to think of a person dying, a person being separated from his body, going on into some spiritual existence apart from his body, there was this tendency in the Greek culture, at least among some in the Greek culture, there was a tendency to think of this as a good thing. And why would you want your body to return? Why would you want to be reunited with your body when your body is sinful uh, your body is lacking. This is Greek thought. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that wickedness, evil, sinfulness are not resident in our hair and fingernails, in our skin and bones. Rather, wickedness, evil, our sinful nature... It is our heart, and again, that's not pump, pump, pump. It is our heart, meaning our inner person, our spirit, our soul, not our body. So that it is not somehow wrong to have a bodily existence. And if it were wrong, then somehow God created something wrong to begin with, and I'm talking about before the fall, because if having a body was wrong, then why were Adam and Eve created with a body? 
The Bible teaches that there is a resurrection from the dead. The Bible teaches that when a believer dies, spirit and soul go to be with the Lord, but the time will come when the body will be raised and reunited with spirit and soul, and it will be a special body in some sense like unto our bodies, but at the same time qualitatively different, different in a number of important ways. Now, this is part of what he will discuss in this chapter, because those who don't believe in the resurrection of the body sometimes come along and say, well, how is this going to work? Because after all, the body has decayed. After all, the body uh, is gone. Uh, sometimes you hear people say, oh, this body, it decayed, and some of its elements entered into the soil, and the soil grew some wheat, and the wheat became bread, and the bread was eaten by somebody else. And so these elements, which were part of one body, are now part of another body, and so how can you separate everything and have a resurrection? Now, of course the answer to all of these things, is that God is almighty <laughs> and is not subject to any of the ordinary limitations which we are subject to in terms of knowledge, presence, power. God is all-knowing. God is uh, present in every place. God is all-powerful. Anyway, this is a subject that he will discuss uh, in the second part of the chapter. Uh, here he wants to impress upon them in the first part. First, he wants to impress upon them, remind them of something that they already know and that they already believe. It seems like they were not in any way denying this. He wants to remind them, first of all, that Christ rose from the dead. He wants to remind them uh, in the section from verse 12 to verse 19 uh, that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our message is vain. Empty, worthless, devoid of meaning, useless, of no value. Uh, our message, our preaching is vain. Remember that there are some people in this day and time who say, it's all right if you don't believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You can still think of him as a great teacher, a wonderful prophet sent from God. His teaching so important. We need to love each other. We need to be uh, right and true and, uh, uh, and holy before God and kind to each other. And it doesn't really matter to these things as far as these things are concerned whether he rose from the dead or not. The Bible says that it matters. The Bible says that the message is vain and our faith is vain and we are liars, false witnesses, uh, and that includes the Lord Jesus because he prophesied, he himself prophesied of his own resurrection. And uh, uh, there is no salvation. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, we have hope that they are uh, with uh, uh, the Lord. And by hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is a word that uh, expresses confidence more than uh, in its common usage in this day and time. Uh, 
Uh, if Christ is not risen, then those who have passed away, they, they, they're gone, they're perished. And we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Uh, verse uh, 20. Now from verse 20 to verse 28, remember the two main ideas. From verse 20 to verse 28. Christ rose as the first fruits. Because of the unity that exists between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer also must rise. The body of the believer must be raised from the dead. If Christ rose and he is the head of the church, then the remaining part of the church, the believer, must also rise. Must also rise. The unity, the union that exists, uh, which the Lord Jesus spoke of in John chapter 14 when he said, Because I live, ye shall live also. So, first of all, there is the idea of this connection between the believer and the Lord Jesus, so that if the Lord Jesus rises, then the believer must also rise. Not right away. It says in verse 23, every man in his own order. First, Christ. And then, those that are his at his coming. Uh, uh, at his coming. The second idea is that the believer must rise because death is an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ must be victorious over all his enemies. Every enemy must be defeated. Every enemy must be vanquished. Every enemy must be conquered. That includes death. Death is associated with sin. Sin and death are not the allies, the friends, uh, the co-workers, you might say, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather they are on the uh, other side. Now since he must reign over all, then death itself must be defeated. He cannot be king of kings, lord of lords. He cannot be ruler of all if his followers are still subject in their bodies to the power, the rule, the bondage, the authority of death. He will raise them up from death so that he will indeed be lord of uh, all things. Uh, as it says at the end of the chapter, uh, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Verse 54, it shall come to pass that saying that is written uh, in the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. Uh, that's Isaiah 25 and verse 8. Uh, Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14 Who shot Latash Arbatash? I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from, uh, from uh, uh, death. He must reign, verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15, until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy 
that shall be destroyed is uh, death. For he has put all things under his feet. Now this appears to be a quotation from Psalm 8 and specifically verse 6. If you'll open with me to Psalm 8 and verse 6. Mazmur 8 wa al-adad siti. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, if you're to look at the psalm, the idea that you would get, the interpretation that I think is sound as you look at the psalm, is that the writer David is speaking about man. Uh, Psalm 8 and verse 4. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son uh, of man uh, uh, and the son of man that thou visitest him. Paul takes the statement of Psalm 8 and verse 6 and applies it to uh, the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. Uh, we see uh, some uh, statements in the Bible that apply in a certain way and that apply in uh, another way uh, as well. Thou hast put all things under his feet. End of Psalm 8 and verse 6 specifically. Paul takes it and applies it to uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. For he has put all things under his feet. And the all things must include uh, death. Now here, it seems that Paul stops to address a potential misunderstanding. Some people might think that if all things are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, if all things are under the authority uh, of uh, the Son, some people might think that means that the Father himself uh, is under the authority of uh, the Son. All things, all things physical, all things uh, spiritual, but that doesn't include the Father being under the authority of uh, the Son. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, one passage which tells us about uh, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Every name that is named, every power and might in this age and in the age to come. Uh, look at First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. Uh, it says, uh, Who is gone into heaven, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Angels, authorities and powers does not necessarily refer to the Father. All things being subject to uh, the Son, 
uh, does not mean that the Father himself is subject to the Son. Back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse uh, 27, when he says that all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, who did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. All will be subdued to the Son, and the Son will be subject to uh, the Father. We are not talking about a rebellious son like the prodigal son. Uh, look with me at some statements that the Lord Jesus made in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus saith unto them, My food is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. John chapter 6 and verse 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John chapter 8 and verse 29. Yohannat meini wal adat tisawashreen. And he that has sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And from the Old Testament, uh, prophetically, uh, the, the statement of Psalm 40 and verses 7 and 8, Mazmur Arba'in wal Adet Sabaut Meni. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Uh, I delight to do thy will, uh, O my God. Uh, yea, thy law is within my heart. So, back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse uh, 28, it says that the Son will be subject to uh, the Father. Now, we should understand that this uh, submission or subjection which is spoken of should, does not have to do with the essence, with the nature of uh, the Son. Rather, it has to do with rank, position, function. If you think of the relationship of husband and wife, the Bible teaches that in that relationship, the husband plays a leading role. But there's a difference between role and essence. The wife is a human being. The husband is a human being. In nature, in essence, they are equal within the marriage relationship, there is a certain leadership role. If you think of civic matters, not to speak of all sorts of things that are happening in this day, but rather think in abstract. The president of the country is greater than me. Why? Because he belongs to a different species? Because he comes from Mars? 
No. He is not greater than me in terms of his essence, in terms of his nature. He is greater than me in that he is president and I'm a regular citizen. فَزَنْ الْأَضِيِّهِ أَضِيِّتْ مَرْكَزْ وَدَوْرْ مش أضيّة طبيعة وجوهر It's important to understand as well maybe it was important in a particular way for the Corinthians that Jesus is not a second God the Father is God and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is God and the Holy Spirit is God they are one God it says that the Son also will be subject unto him that put all things under him so that the Father may be all in all no it doesn't say that the Father may be all in all it says that God may be all in all that God may be all in all Remember that uh, the times of the uh, the times of the Corinthians were times of what? Were times when people believed this was their background, and no doubt people's background has some influence upon them, to some extent or the other. These were times when people believed in many gods. And perhaps it would have been easy for some people to think that the Father is a God and that the Son is another God. And of course the Greek gods and other gods would quarrel and fight and disagree. Often there was discord among them. But not always. Sometimes they were of the same mind. Sometimes they did things together. Sometimes they were in agreement. So that the Father and the Son some people might think, are two gods who happen to be on good terms, who happen to have a good relationship. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Father and the Son are not two separate gods who happen to be on good terms and always work together. The Father and the Son are one. There is one God in the name, not in the names, of the... Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name. One God. Not two gods. Uh, not uh, two gods. Uh, remember early in the, chap- in the letter, one of the problems that he dealt with was division and factionalism and rivalries. In Qisemet, when Shikhaqat, so that some Corinthians, remember, said we are for Paul, others said we are for Peter, and some people said we are for Apollos, and some other people said we are for Christ. Who knows, who knows, maybe some would eventually say we are for the Father, others would say we are for the Son, and some others would say we are for the Spirit. And of course, uh, Paul, Peter, Apollos were not in any way desirous of glory in this particular manner. And Father, Son, and Spirit uh, would not want this factionalism and division, if indeed that was a uh, possibility. The Lord Jesus will rule and reign. He is already a king, and when he comes, we believe that he will rule and reign upon uh, this earth 
in a visible way uh, for uh, a thousand uh, years. During that time, you might say that he will be particularly prominent, seen and known of uh, men. Is this something that makes him a competitor, a rival of the Father, the fact that the Lord Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth? No, it is the desire of the Father that the Son be glorified. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, uh, The Father judges no man, he has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father who sent him. And the terms Father and Son express, among other things, the unity that exists uh, the harmony, the concordance, the fact that uh, there is the same nature and the same uh, uh, working. Uh, the Son himself will be subject to him that put all things under him. Uh, there's this expression in, uh, uh, in Arabic. Uh, <laughs> well, several expressions come to mind. One of them is Fetah al-Hasebu. Fetah al-Hasebu is where someone opens up his own store and has his own agenda and has his own work. The son, مشفتح على حسابه. And uh, the Godhead is not حارت من حارت كل مين إيدو إلو. What is حارت كل مين إيدو إلو? It is an expression which could be translated as the neighborhood where every man's hand is for himself. Think of the end of the book of Judges. It says there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, in his uh, own eyes. The Godhead is not, uh, uh, is not uh, Father pulling in one direction and the Son pulling in another direction and the Holy Spirit pulling in a third direction and each one of them trying to undermine uh, each other, uh, uh, the others in some manner or form. Uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit work together. The Son is glorified. He has uh, a kingdom. This is with the Father's uh, will. And the kingdom uh, will be given by the Son to the Father so that God will be all in all. So that God will be uh, all in all. Now some people take this statement and say, God is all in all, and then they start thinking uh, in some ways, uh, that might be described as Eastern, they start saying something like, oh, God will be all in all. That means that you, me, as an individual, we will cease to exist. We will be united with God like the drop of water from the rain or from the river eventually makes its way to the sea. And uh, we become one with God and, and, and we're just not there anymore in any individual or distinct sense. This is again not what the Bible teaches. And I'm not going to refer here to uh, necessarily to a number of other passages, but I just want to say God will be all in all. It's important sometimes to ask what is the context and the direction of the statement. Is it saying God is all in all so that we will no longer exist individually in distinct ways? It's speaking about death, the last enemy who is going to be destroyed. 
God will be all in all in the sense that he will vanquish all his enemies, that he will be triumphant, that death will be destroyed, and God will be all in all. That is the sense uh, in which uh, 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 the statement is made. I come to Sister Renee and I say uh, to her something, and she tells me, oh, is it really so? And I tell her, oh, Sister Renee, you should trust me. I've never lied to you. Okay, when I say you should trust me, I never lie to you. What do I mean? Do I mean that I would lie to Kevin? <laughs> I would never lie to you. Me, uh, I would never lie to you. Doesn't mean that I will lie to somebody else. All right. I'm affirming that I would never lie. All right. Not the purpose is not saying I'd never lie to you. It's really that I would never lie. And the contrast is, of course, with lying. Not, I'd never lie to you, and the contrast is between that and lying to Kevin. And so, uh, this is something to keep in mind. Uh, death will be uh, no more. Death will be no more. God will reign in all things. God will be all in all. His enemies will be uh, defeated uh, will be uh, defeated. It says in Romans 9 and verse 5, part of the verse says, uh, Christ came who is over all. Who is over uh, all. Also Romans 11 and verse 36, of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Also, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Corinthians Ula Sahtmeni, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him, and we uh, by him. Death must be defeated, death must be conquered, death must be done away with, because Christ is the first fruits. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, he is our forerunner. He has entered heavenly places as our forerunner, the one who goes before us and the one whom we must follow. And so he has gone before us into death and resurrection. We must follow him death and resurrection, and the other idea, as I said, that death must be defeated because he must conquer uh, uh, all. Because he must uh, conquer uh, all. And now we come to an interesting statement, and one concerning uh, which we need to think uh, carefully and uh, need to try to understand and interpret properly. Else what shall they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Not the easiest statement to deal with, uh, to interpret and understand. There are some people in this day and time who believe in what uh, is called, in what they call, a baptism for the dead. One notable group uh, 
that is like that, which believes in the baptism for the dead, is the Mormons. Is the Mormons. Now, I don't want to focus on one specific group in uh, detail. Let's just say that the idea that some people have, the idea that some people have, is that um, if my grandfather was not baptized and he passed away, that I can be baptized for my grandfather who has passed away, who has uh, died. And the idea is that this will help my grandfather in some considerable way. Perhaps my grandfather is in the fires and sufferings of hell. When I am baptized for him, he is raised into heaven. Or perhaps he is in sufferings, the sufferings of so-called purgatory, a place which does not exist according to the Bible. <laughs> but some people think that it does. Perhaps my grandfather is in the sufferings of purgatory, and when I am baptized for him, when I am baptized for him, that somehow uh, he's uh, closer to heaven. He emerges at least to some extent, at least in part, from some of the sufferings of purgatory, gets closer to the end of his sufferings there, and closer to being uh, with God. Does this statement in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29, does this statement indicate that any of the things that I was just saying are correct? That I can be baptized for my grandfather, that he can therefore be raised from sufferings into heaven, either completely or in part because I am baptized for him? The answer is no. 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 That is not what we see in the Bible, and I don't think that that is what we see uh, here. What we see uh, here. Let me just mention, and we'll get into this in more detail next time, let me just mention some things very, very uh, briefly. What do we see uh, in uh, the Bible, and how is this idea of baptism for the dead, which some people have, how is it a, a great uh, error? Let me mention quickly three ideas that are part of this baptism for the dead false teaching that the Bible is dead set against and of course teaches the uh, opposite. When you say that there's a baptism for the dead and someone is raised from suffering into heaven in part or in whole, you are teaching salvation by works. And the Bible very clearly teaches salvation by God's grace, which we receive through faith. So, 
one of the important wrong ideas that is part of the baptism of the dead false teaching is the idea that you are saved by uh, your uh, uh, works. Another false idea that is part of this false teaching is that one person can somehow be saved for the other. Alright? One person cannot be saved for uh, another uh, uh, person. Uh, this is uh, not what uh, the Bible uh, uh, teaches. Uh, uh, teaches. Let me uh, uh, mention uh, another uh, thing over here, and all of, all of a sudden, uh, third idea, very bad idea, that is part of the false teaching of baptism for the dead. If my grandfather is suffering in hell or in purgatory and I am baptized for him and his sufferings come to an end as a result of my baptism, then this means that I am his savior. And there is only one Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see these three wrong ideas, we'll spend more time on them uh, uh, next uh, time, Lord willing. Let me mention them uh, again. Uh, baptism for the dead teaches that salvation is by works, and it is not so. It is by grace and through faith. Baptism for the dead teaches that one person can be saved for another. One of the things that we often ask people when we speak to people and we witness, have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your own, your personal Savior? Because there's no such thing as me being saved for somebody else or somebody else being saved for me. Every one of us ourselves will give an account of himself to God. Third false idea that you could say is part of the idea of baptism for uh, the dead is the idea that I save you. All right? Now, I save my grandfather if I'm baptized for him. And, and people do this in other ways, in different ways, uh, when they think that, for instance, the saints will save them. All right? One way or the other, this is removing the Lord Jesus from his role as Savior and putting somebody else. You know, if the saints will save you, or if Mary will save you, uh, or if your great-grandfather will save you. All right? Now, here's the other way around. I'll baptize for my grandfather. I'm going to save him. But there are many people who believe that, let's say, if my grandfather is Abraham, then because he's my grandfather, he will save me. 
right? He's standing at the door of heaven or sitting or whatever, and when people show up, he'll say, oh, you're one of mine, go in. So that means that he's the Savior. Neither me being baptized for my grandfather, nor my grandfather doing something for me, nor uh, saints, the Bible teaches every believer is a saint, that's the biblical view, the view that prevails uh, in other places, it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is one Savior, that we don't save each other uh, in the way that we're talking about, that forms part of the baptism uh, 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 of the dead. Now, Sister Renee can witness to me, and I receive the message, and I'm saved, but guess what? But if Sister Vera shared the same message with me, then I would, and I received it, I would be saved as well. So what is crucial? It's the message. It's the message which is crucial. All right? First uh, Corinthians 3, who are Paul, who are Apollos? These are workers by whom you believed. And the Lord gave this to every man. Uh, every man. Uh, I planted and Apollos watered. God gave uh, the uh, increase. Uh, God gave the uh, increase. So, let's keep in mind that the practice of some people at this time of being baptized for the dead is not in any way supported by uh, Scripture. And we'll look at several passages and we want to be clear about how the Bible speaks in so many different places about the things which I mentioned. Now, what about this verse and how to understand uh, this, uh, this verse? Well, <laughs> let's uh, focus on that, uh, Lord willing, uh, next time uh, as, as well. It is not something that can be used legitimately, correctly, to support the so-called baptism for the dead, practiced by some people here and there uh, at this time and in the past. That's not what it means. That's not what it supports. That's not what it, uh, uh, it teaches. Uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, the one who is the first fruits, and the one who will conquer death, the last enemy, which will be destroyed, so that in all things he will rule and reign with Father and Spirit, three and yet one. We pray that you would help us to believe that in all things his power will prevail, not just in the raising of the bodies of his own, but also as we live for him and face difficulties and challenges, trials, temptations. Help us to know that his promises are sure, that they are backed up by his almighty power. We pray that you would help us 
to understand what your word says and not to fall pray to any false teaching of any kind. We thank you because your word tells us that salvation is by faith, not by works. If it were by works, we could never earn it, never deserve it, never merit it, never work enough to have it. Your word tells us that each one of us must come unto you. That each one of us must receive your word and believe it. And your word tells us that there is one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.